really appreciate it if you all would listen carefully because this is really important. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminabad, Aminabad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel. Shelatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Ahud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The Word of God. Now, when I started, my guess is some of you are like, okay, is, is Al being sarcastic? Is, is this a joke? And I assure you it's not. But I understand why you would have thought that. If someone had started like that at one point in my journey, I would have thought, hmm, not sure if serious, Clark. You know, that kind of thing. And the truth of the matter is, it's sort of been a Christian tradition at Christmas. You want to study the birth of Jesus, but you sort of smile and skip over the begats, right? And we call them the begats because that was the word in the old King James Version of the Bible. Who remembers the King James Version? Believe it or not, the King James Version was first published in 1611. So just five years ago, it celebrated its 400th anniversary. For 400 years, Christians, and, and by the way, it's still being published today. It's the most read version of the Bible ever published. For 400 years, Christians have been reading the begats because instead of saying that Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob, it said Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. And 42 times it says begat, begat, begat. And so it's sort of been a Christian tradition to skip the begats. 
And I understand that impulse. But early in my Christian journey, I had to decide what weight I was going to give to this book we called the Bible. You see, I'd become a Christian, and I noticed that the church I was attending, they always taught from the Bible. And it's like, well, why should I believe the Bible? And so I spent almost a year reading books about how the Bible was put together. I read scholarly articles. I even attended a seminary class about the Bible so I could fully understand it. At the end of that year, I came to the conclusion This book is the inspired word of God. It is the truth that I had finally found something I could stand on. It was the only truth that I had ever known in my life, and I put my trust in it. Well, at that point, I encountered another small problem. Because in the book, it says that the whole thing is inspired. So verses like 1 Timothy 3.16, where it says... All scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. Even Jesus' words, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so at that point, I determined I was no longer going to be one of those Christians who skipped the begats. And one of my hopes today, as we study and look at the birth of Jesus, is by the end of my sermon, that you too will believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, that all Scripture is important, that all Scripture is enriching and life-giving. And by all Scripture, yes, I mean including the begats. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I'm grateful that you have not left us without instruction, that you've given us guidance in your word. And because of that, Father, I, I feel even more strongly at this moment that what my friends need to hear right now is they don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from you, Father. So, Father, please, would you speak and let me get out of the way so that your words and your truth can go forth and accomplish what you desire in the lives and the hearts of my friends here at Rock Hills. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're in our third week of our series called Anticipation, Experiencing the Wonder of Waiting. And this is the Advent season. And maybe you've noticed over the past few weeks that the frenzy has started to ratchet up, haven't you? The, the traffic is getting crazy, right? That pressure to get the shopping done, the, the parties that you have to go to. And this has been the experience of Christians for centuries, folks, that, that around Christmas season, things get frantic. And so the response by Christians was to start to celebrate Advent the last four weeks of the year before Christmas, the four weeks before Christmas, to focus on the reason for the season that Jesus was going to be celebrated in his birth on December 25th. And so here at Rock Hills, what we've decided to do is to help you with that. So we designed a message series called Anticipation, 
experiencing the wonder of waiting, but we also have a hashtag campaign, hashtag anticipation advent project. And if you will go to the Facebook page of Rock Hills and just like it, you will get each day a word in your email box, and that word will help you focus on one aspect of the Advent season. So I hope you'll do that. And that's something that's been done for centuries. Now, today, we're talking about the birth of Jesus. And if I had told you before I read the Begats that I'm going to start in the very first book of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to start in the very first chapter, and I'm going to start in the very first verse, you probably would have said, well, you know, that makes sense. But now that you know it's the Begats, maybe you would have said, really, Al, you know, let's just skip over that. Why why do we have to to look at those things? And, And as I said, that's an understandable impulse in our culture. In the 1970s, Reader's Digest who's made a fortune condensing books, right, shortening them, taking a full-length book and making it shorter, the Reader's Digest version, they decided to do that with the Bible, believe it or not. You know, tell me how you take out the non-important parts of the Bible. But they did. And one of the things they removed was all the begats. And so that is the mindset that most Christians have. But that would not have been the mindset of the Jews. Why did Matthew begin with 42 names? the genealogy, the begats? And the answer is because the Jews would have been enthralled by it. They would have been captivated by it. And to understand that, you need to understand what culture has been like throughout most of human history. See, today, if you want to communicate something about yourself, who you are, what you've accomplished, you'd probably give somebody your resume, right? And it's going to have your educational background, your jobs. It may have a little personal data. But through most of human history, including this time in Israel, people didn't have resumes. What determined who they were was their family. And so when you met someone, your resume was your name. You see, in those days you were born into a family, and let's say you had a a ranch. Well, That was your lot in life. Your destiny was tied to your family and whether or not that ranch thrived. So everybody pitched in and tried their best to make that ranch successful. If you were a business like a carpenter, you tried your best as a family member to make the carpentry business successful. And over time, your family developed a name. And so when you would meet someone, you might say, yeah, uh, I'm the Johnsons of Bethlehem. And they'd go in their brain, they'd go, oh, yeah, the Johnsons. They've got that spread south of town, a couple hundred sheep, some cattle, a bunch of olive trees. Yeah, the Johnsons, yeah, they go to synagogue. They're honest people. Yeah, the Johnsons, they's good people. And that was your resume, was your name. You didn't have the ability to switch families. You couldn't just leave your ranch and your plot of land and say, I'm, you know what, I'm going to go make my uh, fortune with the Smith family. That didn't happen. And so that is why the, the genealogy was so important to this, the Jewish people at this time. But there's another reason that Matthew starts with a genealogy. You see, at this time, everyone knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Not only that, all his followers, including Matthew, were saying, this guy is the Messiah. But the Jews knew their Bible. That was really the only book anybody read. There was no 
you know, bookstore. The only book anybody had was the Bible, and they all knew their Bible, and they knew two things about the Messiah for sure, that it had to be a descendant of Abraham, and it had to be a descendant of David. Why, why did they know that? Well, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham had a very close relationship with God. God asked Abraham to move, and he moved. And, and the Bible details this close relationship God had with Abraham, and he actually raised Abraham up. And over time, he's telling Abraham, you are going to become a father. Finally, Abraham is 90, somewhere between 90 and 100 years old, and still no kids. And one night, he just cries out to God. He says, Lord, you've promised me I'm going to be a father, but my wife is barren. My wife is past childbearing age. I can't have any kids anymore. How are you going to do this? And God takes Abraham outside, and he says, look up, Abraham. And Abraham looks up and God says, do you see those stars? Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. And one of those descendants, through one of those descendants, I will bless the whole world. And the Jews understood that that was God's promise to Abraham, that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. Now, what about David? David was described by God himself as a man after my own heart. And God raised David up. He was a poor shepherd. And he said to David, David, I'm going to put you on the throne of Israel, the most powerful nation in the world. But not only that, David, I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne forever. And again, the Jews understood that what God was talking about is the Messiah would come as a descendant of David. And so how does Matthew begin his gospel? You can read it again. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the reason Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogies is because it would have captivated, it would have riveted the people. When he said he's the son of Abraham, the son of David would have been like grabbing him by the the collar and they would have thought, wait, this could be the Messiah. He's of the right lineage. Let's continue reading. And so they would have continued reading the gospel. This would have enthralled them. They would not have skipped over it. This would have been critically important to them. Now, what this genealogy really amounts to, what these 42 names really amount to, is just that, a list of names, right? We go over it, and and our eyes kind of glaze over, you know, all these names. But think about that. Let's think about the meaning and significance of a name for just a minute. You see, we all have a name. We understand in those 42 names, there's 42 journeys of life. We understand how precious and how infinitely complex a life is. And the reason is we all have been living a life. And we understand that each name represents a life, and a life is composed of things like hopes and dreams, composed of things like loves and friendships, composed of things like triumphs and failures. And so a life is incredibly precious Here's a paradox I want to point out to you. You see, it's likely 
It's almost certain, in fact, that 100 years from now, the name Alhazar will never again be spoken of on this planet, and not a single person will remember that I ever existed. In fact, I read an article recently that research indicates that within 60 or 70 years, no one in this room will be remembered. Now, my my daughter may remember me for a few years, my grandson a little bit less, but my great-grandson? Let me do a thought experiment. Each one of you has eight great-grandparents. How many of you can name your eight great-grandparents? I know I can't. That tells you how fleeting life is. And it really points out the truth of a verse that I decided to memorize years ago because it, it grounded me. It gave me such perspective. It's, it's Psalm 103, actually verse 15 and 16, and it goes like this. As for man, his days are like the grass. Man flourishes like a flower of the field. Then the wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. What a sobering image that in the grand scheme of this world history, folks, your life and my life is like a blade of grass. It just comes up one day, the wind blows and it's gone, and no one remembers its place again. But wait, there's 42 names on this list. Historians believe, as best they can determine, that Abraham lived 1,600 years ago. Excuse me, 1,600 years before Jesus, B.C. That's 3,600 years. And we're still talking about him. And what about these other people? We're still talking about them. And you begin to understand. Yes, we're still talking about them for one reason. Because they're connected to Jesus. You see, our lot in life, our destiny, some of it has been ordained for us. Some of us, some of you people have been given being born into a wealthy family. Some not. Some people have been given what I call a a pretty earth suit, you know, an attractive body, and some not so much. Some people have been given a really brilliant mind and others a more average mind. There's people in Honduras who grow up in a poor village and they'll probably never get out of poverty. And so the question is, what are you doing with your lot in life? You see, if your lot in life is you weren't born into a wealthy family, if you don't have great athletic ability, don't despair because your name if it's connected to Jesus, will be remembered forever. And where do I get that? I get that from Luke 10, 20. You see, some people like to rejoice because they're in a wealthy family or rejoice because they have an attractive body or rejoice because they have great athletic ability. There's nothing wrong with those things. But Jesus has sent off 72 guys and he's had them sharing the gospel and they've had power to cast out demons and do all kinds of miracles and they come back and their mind is blown. In Luke 10, 20, Jesus is talking to them and he says, don't rejoice because you cast out demons, but rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. And then Revelation 3, 5 
says a little bit more about this book of life. And I, and I love this, and I think we have that scripture also. And this is what Jesus says as Jesus is talking about the book of life. In Revelation, he says this, The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Basically, Jesus is promising to acknowledge your name before God forever. So regardless of what God has ordained for you in this temporary journey of life, if you're not connected to Jesus, it's going to be like a blade of grass and you're going to be gone. But if you are, you will be remembered forever, just like the people in this genealogy. So that is the significance and impact of a name. Now I want to talk about my main point in this message. The main point in this message and what we see in the, in the begats and the genealogy is that grace is just gushing out of the begats. You see, grace is this amazing concept that really is unique to Christianity. Theologians and other people have argued for centuries, what is the central message of the Christian faith, particularly in the New Testament? What's the central message? And I believe, like many other theologians and pastors and believers, that the central message is grace. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. He used to be an atheist. He's a brilliant professor on the faculty in Oxford. C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and he became a Christian. And nowadays, especially in the 20th century, there's, there's many world conferences religions and, and ecumenical conferences where religious leaders from all over the world get together, and they discuss comparative religion. And C.S. Lewis attended one of those in London in the 50s. And they were debating, you know, is there anything really different between the religions? And they concluded that there was nothing different. All the religions were basically the same, that they all centered on the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Lewis got up and he said, no, you're wrong. You're just, you're just wrong. Yes, we have that golden rule in the Christian faith. But you all believe... That following the golden rule is how you get right with God. Christians don't believe that. Christians believe you can't get right with God by your own conduct, by following the law. The only way you can get right with God is by his grace because he sent his son about 2016 years ago to be born on this earth. And that's why we're studying the birth of Jesus today. I think Matthew knew this better than any of us. See, Matthew had been a Jew. Throughout the Jewish history, they had taken a wrong turn. God began the Jewish nation with Abraham. And he took Abraham out. And he said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And the Bible says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. From the very beginning... Your relationship with God gets reestablished on one basis, and that is faith in God's promises. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is grace. And Matthew, as a Jew, knew that better than anybody. And through the whole New Testament, I believe this central theme of God's grace has been explained and drawn out, and it begins right here in the begats. 
every one of these names has the same standing before God. And that is guilty and condemned. But there's something interesting in here. Every one of these names proclaims God's grace. But I don't know if you noticed, but as we were reading the begats, there was four women that were mentioned. Did you notice that? That would have been unheard of to the Jews. Because in this culture, in this day and age, women had no power. They had no authority. You never included women in your genealogy. As a Jewish person reading Matthew's genealogy, they would have said, wait, wait what's, why is this woman here? So he was clearly trying to bring attention to something. So we're going to focus just on the four women. There's five women in the genealogy, four besides Mary. We're going to focus on them. And I think we're going to see why Matthew put them in there. The first one is Tamar. Got to get my glasses again. And this is what it says, and it's in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, all throughout the other begats, they don't mention the mother. Why do they mention Tamar? And I'm convinced it's because Matthew was trying to get people to understand God's grace. And let me tell you the story of Tamar. Some of you may know it. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And so Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph. And these are the tribes of the nation of Israel. So Judah becomes the head of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is going to come out of the line of the tribe of Judah. This is going to be a descendant of Jesus. This, this exalted, incredible man, Judah. Well, guess what? Judah, uh, Tamar was not much. Okay, she was just sort of an unknown Jewish girl, but she marries one of Judah's sons. Well, Judah's son dies, and that's a catastrophe for a woman in that day and time because she needs to have children because children cement her place in the clan, in the tribe of Judah. But also, the only people that take care of you when you get old, there's no nursing homes. You have to depend on your children. So women need to have kids to cement their place in the family and also to have children. Well, her husband dies. Under the tradition there, Judah, her father-in-law, gives her to the next brother. Well, that brother refuses to sleep with her and have any kids. And so she goes to Judah and says, he's not fulfilling his obligations under the law. And Judah says, oh, I'll take care of it. But he procrastinates. He isn't doing anything. And so Tamar decides to take things into her own hands. And here's what she does. She finds out that Judah is going to go to town to have his sheep sheared. And so she goes ahead of him, and she dresses like a prostitute because she's determined to have kids. And here's what the Bible says. When Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. This is a person in the genealogy of Jesus. And I, and I want you to reflect on this. In the Jewish culture, sleeping with your daughter-in-law or your father-in-law was considered incest. Incest made you unfit to worship in the temple. You were basically you were excluded from Jewish life. So Judah commits incest and adultery. Tamar 
dresses up like a prostitute, basically commits prostitution and incest. And these people are in the genealogy of Jesus. It would have been very simple for Matthew just to exclude Tamar. He didn't have to put her in there. But he wanted to bring to mind this incident with Judah. Now, who's the next woman in the begats, in the genealogy? The next woman is Rahab. Some of you may remember Rahab. What was happening is Moses had just died. The army of Israel, or the whole Israeli nation, is sitting on one side of the Jordan, waiting to go into the promised land. And the first major city is Jericho. So Joshua sends two spies in to spy out Jericho. They get to Jericho, and they get caught. Basically, the the word gets out. And so they go to Rahab, who is a prostitute, and she hides them. The king gets when that maybe somebody is hiding him, he asks Rahab, are you hiding the two Jewish spies? And she says, no, she's not. No, I'm not. And she helps them escape. And she is in the genealogy of Jesus. Once again, Matthew didn't have to mention her name, but he did. Another prostitute in the genealogy of Jesus. The next name next female name is Ruth. You may know Ruth because there's a whole Bible book about her. Well, what's interesting about Ruth is that she was from Moab. She was a Moabitess. Well, the Moabites were infamous for being sun and moon worshipers. They were pagans. Not only that, they were well known for infant sacrifice. They were despised by the Jews. They thought they were the lowest of the lowest, besides maybe the Samaritans, the most despised people group. And yet, Ruth, a Gentile, and by the way, Gentiles were never supposed to be allowed to worship. They were never supposed to be right with God. You could only be right with God by being a Jew. And supposedly, remember, the whole genealogy of Jesus is all the people that are right with God. No, Matthew is systematically blowing that up. And he says, even a Moabitess, is in the genealogy of Jesus. And then the last name, the last female name before Mary, the last female mentioned in the genealogy, in the begats. And it says this, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now that's interesting. Again, didn't even have to mention the woman, but he mentions her. It's like, hmm, doesn't this woman have a name? He says, Uriah's wife? Well, as a matter of fact, she does have a name. You may have heard of it, Bathsheba. Why would Matthew not put Bathsheba? And here is what I believe is the answer. David was the most exalted leader in the history of Israel. Remember, God said, he's a man after my own heart. And the Jews looked to him as this idealized, perfect man. And if they could just be like David, they would be right with God. Again, works-based mentality. Not, Not basing anything, their relationship with God, on grace. And Matthew just explodes that. What he says is this. All right, you folks, you think David was this great man? 
let me remind you that David did something more evil and wicked than probably any of you will ever do. Because there was a time when he was supposed to be out at war with his army, and he stayed in Jerusalem. And he's bored, and he's surveying Jerusalem. He sees this beautiful woman. He has his people bring her to his palace. He seduces her and sleeps with her, and uh uh-oh, she gets pregnant, and her husband's away. And now he's going to be found out. And so what does this great man David do, this godly, upright man? After he's slept with his good friend's wife, he then has his good friend murdered. And so Matthew did not want that event to be glossed over. He said, remember David? He had Solomon. Oh, by the way, he had Solomon by Uriah's wife. Don't ever forget that, people of Israel. Because your standing with God is never based upon your good works, just like with David. And so you see... This gospel of grace just comes gushing out of the genealogies. And what we come to at the end of it is that our standing with God is the same no matter who we are, whether we're Rahab, whether we're Tamar, whether we're Bathsheba, whether we're Ruth, whether we're David, our standing is all the same, and that standing is guilty, condemned. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can be good enough. That's what grace says. But what grace says is 2,016 years ago, God, by his grace, through a series of 42 people, birthed on this earth, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. See, folks, I know, or I'm pretty sure, everyone in here loves a good fairy tale. If I asked you, you could probably tell me the basic plot of Snow White and the basic plot of Sleeping Beauty, the basic plot of you know, the Beauty and the Beast. We love fairy tales, but we know they're not real. <laughs> they start once upon a time. They end with, and they lived happily ever after. And we love fairy tales because good triumphs over evil. Often, the person is loved with this unconditional love that changes them into a beautiful person. And often, a wonderful prince awakens them to life everlasting. And yes, we love fairy tales because we wish they were true, but I think there's something deeper. I think they resonate so deeply Because there's something about them that we know really is true. You see, Jesus is not another fairy tale that points to a reality that we hope for. Jesus is the ultimate reality to which all the fairy tales point. And Matthew wanted us to know that. He wanted us to know this is not a fairy tale, that this is the truest truth in the universe.
And so he did not begin the gospel with once upon a time. He started his gospels with the begats. Let's pray. Father, I'm always moved by the truth and the depth and the richness of your word. Thank you, Father, that you have ordained grace. We can never be good enough, but by your grace, you sent your son just about 2016 years ago to be born. And Father, I pray that my friends here at Rock Hills would grasp this truth and this reality. And I pray that they would put their faith in the fact that Jesus died for them and paid their punishment. And I pray that in doing that, they would know that their name is written in the book of life. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.